Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. We all know the first cases of COVID-19 were found in Wuhan. But was it inevitable that the virus would spread across the world? Could it, in those early days, have been contained within China? Rather than saying publicly China is claiming that there is no human-to-human transmission, the WHO just repeated it as, as fact. The Sunday Times Insight team have been investigating the World Health Organization's response to the pandemic. They are very concerned about the politicisation of the WHO and the way countries can seemingly buy influence. They've found that the body that's tasked with looking after the world's health seriously malfunctioned in those opening weeks when humanity most needed it to come to their rescue. But why? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, China, the WHO, and the power grab that fueled a pandemic. Meet the journalistic double act behind some of the biggest and most revealing investigations during the pandemic. I'm Jonathan Calvert. I'm the uh, editor of the Sunday Times Insight team. I'm George Abuffnot, and I'm the deputy editor of the Insight team. You may have heard our podcasts with them on their investigations into government failings in the handling of COVID-19, the number of COBRA meetings that Boris Johnson missed, and they're digging around into the origins of the virus. More than a year and a half into the pandemic, and that remains a mystery. We may never get a definitive answer to where the virus came from and if it could have been prevented. And that's in part because of decisions taken by the World Health Organization. So the Sunday Times Insight team have turned their attention to the WHO and what they found is astounding. This story really begins 18 years ago. To understand the World Health Organization and how they've handled this pandemic, we need to go back to another coronavirus outbreak, SARS in 2002. This week saw the galloping rise of SARS, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. And as the disease spreads to North America... Jonathan sets the scene. 
SARS pandemic started in November 2002 when a number of people from Guangdong province in southern China began to fall ill. And by January 2003, there was a stream of cases going into the region's hospitals. The Chinese government immediately enforced strict laws it has, which classified all new infectious diseases as a state secret. And so therefore, they didn't tell anybody about it. And the crisis was allowed to kind of continue until around about February that year. The WHO received an email from the son of a former employee describing the mysterious virus, which by then had already killed a hundred people. The cat was out of the bag. China did share some limited information about the new virus the following day. However, the government officials were still claiming that the illness was under control, and this was untrue. SARS had already spread to other parts of China, and it would eventually spread to Hong Kong and and Canada. Panic grips Hong Kong as a deadly new virus sweeps through the city, one of the most densely... China was alleged to have gone to great lengths to keep the SARS outbreak hidden, particularly from the probing eye of the World Health Organization. It's alleged that 30 patients with the virus were driven around Beijing in ambulances, while another 40 uh, were moved out of hospital into a hotel just to hide all the cases from the WHO scientists. It was an extraordinary cover-up. It was a cover-up that the WHO exposed. Gro Harlem Brundtland, who was the WHO Director General, decided that, that what they were doing was beyond the pale and, and, and got tough. But she was a former Norwegian prime minister. That's George again. She then uh, took a brave decision to issue strong advice to the world, basically, not to travel to the affected areas. And she also strongly criticised China. The travel restrictions appear to have worked and the spread of the virus quickly ceased and it was brought back under control by the early summer of 2003 with only 8,000 cases and just under 800 deaths. Compared to COVID-19, with infection numbers reaching hundreds of millions around the world, the containment of SARS was a major success. But for China, it was a huge setback, and one with a significant financial toll. Something like an estimated $6 billion uh, loss in the country's gross domestic product. And as a result, China would take a kind of newfound interest in the way that the World Health Organization was governed. It was while they were researching their book, Failures of State, the inside story of Britain's battle with coronavirus, that the Insight team became intrigued by the lack of action from the World Health Organization. It seemed extraordinary to us that this body had done so little in the face of the emerging coronavirus crisis. We were aware, of course, the WHO had been accused of being too close to China, I mean, not least, of course, by President Donald Trump. We wanted to kind of see if that was true. The United States uh, pays them $450 million a year. China pays them $38 million a year. And they're a puppet of China. They're uh, China-centric, to put it nicer, but they're a puppet of China. After the humiliation of the SARS crisis, China turned its attention to the World Health Organization. In 2006, just a few years later, the WHO was in search of a new director general. China swooped in. There was already this woman called Dr. Margaret Chang, who was the former Hong Kong health director. 
who was actually working for the WHO, and she was kind of the perfect candidate for China to get behind. Obviously, they had to get her elected. So China really did pull the kind of diplomatic levers. I mean, we were looking through some of the Chinese media in that period, and you can see orders going out to all the Chinese embassies around the world to do everything they can to ensure that the, vo the voting countries got behind her. We could see this play out, particularly in Africa, just five days before the vote. A big summit was held in Beijing for all the leaders of the African nations. And at that summit, China pledged to cancel large amounts of their debt and double aid donations to the continent, which is a move that even Chinese state-backed analysts admitted was designed to secure backing for Chan. Ultimately, those efforts paid off. Chan won with two-thirds of the votes in, in the final ballot. During her time as director general, did we see the WHO shifting its attitude towards China? Did things change? What's quite noticeable is, is the, the way suddenly the director general is praising friends and allies of China in a way that I think would have been inconceivable before that. So, for example, in April 2010, she made a trip to North Korea one of China's neighbours and allies. And she made this claim that the, the country's health system was the envy of most developing nations. It was, I mean, it was a really hotly disputed claim. It wasn't the only controversy surrounding Chan. In 2014, when Ebola struck, it took her two whole months to declare it an international emergency, despite repeated warnings from her own experts. Allegedly, she was worried about China's economic interests in the African countries hit by the outbreak. One of those countries was Guinea, which was striking a major mining rights deal with a state-backed Chinese firm at the time. And what was said was that the president of Guinea was very, very reluctant to admit that there was Ebola in this country because he was worried that the whole mining arrangement would collapse and the Chinese would pull out. She also drew criticism for some of the appointments she made, like giving a goodwill ambassador's role to Peng Luan, a famous singer who also happens to be the wife of the Chinese president, Xi Jinping. By 2017, Margaret Chan had served her two terms as director general of the WHO. It was time for a new face. But not before Chan changed the rules in a way that would give China greater influence over how the next DG was elected. Under the new system, all 194 member countries, regardless of their size or the size of their economies, would get an equal vote on who the next director general would be. Before that, only around 30 of the biggest countries were eligible to vote for a new candidate. As Jonathan and George know from the work they did investigating Sepp Blatter, the former president of FIFA, football's world governing body, it's a voting system that has its flaws. The problem that had arisen in, around FIFA was because giving very tiny countries such a big voting power meant that they were very susceptible to big financial inducements from much bigger countries seeking to control a particular organisation. Crucially, in 2017, when Margaret Chan stepped down, it meant that the next director general, her, her successor, would be voted on under this system, which was, would be particularly helpful to a country like China, 
which was willing to use its full financial and diplomatic leverage in order to secure power over these kind of organisations. So under the new rules, a new director general was voted in. It was seen as another victory for China, as the role went to an ally, a former epidemiologist and health minister in the Ethiopian government. The 70th World Health Assembly appoints Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus as Director General of the World Health Organization. He was perfect in many ways. Not only was he an African representative, but he was also, over a number of years, been a great friend to China. This election has been unprecedented in that it brought transparency to the organization and even greater legitimacy to the Director General. China put its, its weight behind his candidacy and Tedros won hands down. In those days before the vote, China had indeed turned on the money taps. Just nine days before the polling, President Xi, she pledged more than $100 billion in extra funding to developing countries who held votes on the World Health Assembly and therefore in Tedros's election. And do we know if those countries voted for him? As we understand it from our sources within the WHO, the developing country vote was went very strongly to Tedros. I believe in us. I believe in us in making a difference. Through partnership and collaboration, anything is possible. Let's get to work together for a healthier world. Thank you so much again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. More recently, many people around the world will only have become really aware of him and his position at the height of, of the COVID crisis, you know, when he's sort of become the poster boy for the WHO and the international handling of COVID-19. I mean, take me back to 2018, you know, barely eight months after taking charge. He gave a speech. He warned about the ever-present threat of a new respiratory illness. You know, knowing what you know now, when that threat did finally materialise, are you surprised by how the WHO responded? And are you surprised by that speech, looking back now? The speech said all the right things. He predicted, and quite kind of with unerring accuracy, that uh, the world could soon face another disaster like the Spanish flu. And he was making the point that it was very important to act decisively and quickly, because if you didn't, the chance might be lost, and that might be the difference between containing a new virus and it being allowed to spread across the world. So when the COVID-19 virus first emerged at the end of December and then was first reported in the opening weeks of January, you would have expected the WHO to be all over it. You would have expected clear, decisive action to contain the virus at its source. But that's not what happened. Coming up... What was going on inside the WHO during this crucial period? And how different might the pandemic have been if the World Health Organization had responded differently? But first. Hello, I'm Emma Tucker, editor of The Sunday Times. It's thanks to listeners like you that we're able to provide journalism that matters. Get to the heart of the story every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Hold up. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. You've set out how China managed to gain influence within the WHO under two direct generals. And then in middle of... Tedros's time in office, along comes COVID. Huge global pandemic. When was the very first time we heard from the WHO about the emergence of a new respiratory illness from Wuhan? The first person to really raise the alarm within China that we know about was a doctor called Dr. Li Wenliang. Um, and he was immediately clamped down on, on by, by the Chinese. But the Taiwanese picked up an alert on the concerns. And Taiwan then alerted the WHO and said, we're worried about this unusual pneumonia outbreak. It had taken a different country to alert the WHO. So what then happened over those next uh, kind of first week of January was the WHO was trying to get information out of China. And China was assuring them that there was no evidence of any human-to-human -human transmission. Meanwhile, within China, um, they were trying to suppress anyone who would contradict that line by kind of censoring social media posts. Then the other thing that China was doing was they had already discovered that the illnesses were being caused by, by a coronavirus that was from the SARS family, yet they didn't tell the WHO about that. So it was an enormous cover-up was going on. But meanwhile, the WHO, rather than kind of publicly questioning the information coming out of China, particularly as cases were starting to spread, um, just effectively took China's word for it. So the WHO effectively perpetuated the cover-up from China and, and kind of gave it credibility. What was actually happening on the ground in Wuhan? In the first two, two weeks of January, there were kind of desperate scenes in the, in the hospitals. The doctors, they were in awful conditions. Some of them wore nappies inside protective suits to avoid taking breaks. Many, they had to turn away patients, which was heartbreaking. I mean, the doctor described how 
that some patients even knelt down to beg him to accept them into the hospital, but there was nothing he could do. And whilst this was happening, what was the WHO saying to the world in January? On January the 10th, the WHO issued a, a statement saying, from the currently available information, preliminary investigation suggests there is no significant human-to-human -human transmission and no infections among healthcare workers have occurred. The agency didn't even try and to couch its language in a way that would have made clear that this was just a claim from China. WHO was seen to be more mindful of the need to guard against taking measures that would damage the Chinese economy. Because the statement added, WHO advises against the application of any travel or trade restrictions on China. Given the, um, the lesson from the 2003 SARS crisis, that seemed to be kind of the opposite approach to what had been so successful in containing the crisis at, at that point. Is there a sense that this might not have gone global if they'd done something about that earlier, if that advice had been different, if people hadn't been allowed to travel in and out of China? Well, certainly it is the case that, that China did actually stop the, the virus completely. Its lockdown did get rid of the virus in, in Wuhan. And I think there is probably every chance if there had been stricter measures on China at the very beginning, that it could have been contained in China. Maybe a few cases would have gone out, but there might not have been enough to seed such a major pandemic. I mean, during that whole early period, do we have a sense now of the discussions that were taking place inside the organisation? Some leaked recordings of some of the WHO meetings at that time were given to the Associated Press news agency. And they revealed that in the second week of January, Dr. Michael Ryan, who's the WHO's chief of emergencies, was saying that he wanted to apply more pressure on China because he could see the crisis was becoming a repeat of the 2003 SARS crisis. He also appears to have been keen to raise the lack of cooperation by China publicly he said, the danger now is that despite our good intent, especially if something does happen, there will be a lot of finger pointing at the WHO. Throughout those early weeks of January, China, and with it the WHO, were downplaying the significance of the threat. But a leak from the Shanghai Public Health Clinical Centre Lab soon put a stop to that. This virus was spreading fast and it was soon going to be the New Year celebrations in China when people will be crisscrossing to the country. And the staff at the Shanghai Public Health Clinical Centre Laboratory were growing increasingly anxious about the need to develop tests for the virus. Part of being able to develop a test was putting out the genetic code for the virus, which had been sequenced as early as January the 3rd. The Chinese authorities had it and just didn't put it out. As millions prepared to travel for Chinese New Year on the 25th of January, potentially spreading the virus with them, the Shanghai lab took matters into their own hands, without approval from the Chinese government. They published the genetic code on a US computer database called GenBank. They hoped that this would encourage international scientists to come up with tests and vaccines to help stop the spread of the virus. And when the Chinese authorities learned about the leak, rather than praised this lab, they closed the Shanghai laboratory for, for what they call rectification, which is a kind of Chinese communist way of saying they needed to reposition their minds for a while because they obviously had been very badly behaved. 
Within Wuhan, the situation was becoming desperate. Chinese authorities were preparing to build a brand new hospital with a thousand beds in just 10 days. Incredible footage emerged showing dozens of bulldozers, diggers and builders feverishly at work. But meanwhile, inside the WHO... Tedros had just held an emergency committee meeting for the first time. The committee has a number of different countries on it. There's about 20 different experts, including a Chinese expert. And when the emergency committee came to decide whether or not they should announce a public health emergency of, of international concern, the committee was split. All they were doing is providing advice to Tedros. Ultimately, the, the decision was up to him. And he decided to side with the group who didn't think there should be a, an emergency call. Make no mistake, this is, though, an emergency in China. But it has not yet become a global health emergency. That was despite the fact that there was now 581 cases in China across 24 regions, and 18 people had died, or that's at least according to the official Chinese figures. The true figures would have been far higher than that. And the virus had also now escaped to four other countries where 10 cases had been announced. The health agency also the same day reiterated that countries should not impose travel restrictions on China. The other thing that, that happened in those days around that briefing was that Wuhan itself went into a lockdown, which at that point was absolutely unprecedented. The consequences of that press briefing were felt globally. The next day, Britain held a COBRA meeting. It was the first of five that Boris Johnson would miss. Um, one of the things it said was the World Health Organization hadn't, at that point, designated the outbreak an international emergency. And that's why the prime minister was so casual about it that he allowed his health minister to uh, chair the COBRA meeting instead of him. By the end of January, the World Health Organization finally made the call. I'm declaring a public health emergency of international concern over the global outbreak of novel coronavirus. But the Director General was prolific in his praise for the way China had handled the crisis so far. This declaration is not a vote of no confidence in China. On the contrary, WHO continues to have a confidence in China's capacity to control the outbreak. I'll repeat this. Let me be clear. This declaration is not a vote of no confidence in China. But by then, the damage had been done. The virus had been detected in 18 countries, would have certainly been in, in several more. We, we know now that it had reached Britain. That lost time. How did that hamper attempts to contain the outbreak, but also some of the investigations later into the virus's origins? The fact that so little was done in January, any hope that the world would have had of containing the, that virus was gone. And then once that had happened and we all went into lockdowns around the world, the hit peak numbers of cases, everyone could see that there had been an absolute disaster. And so the crucial question then was, what was the origin of the virus? 
we need to know that because if we're going to be able to stop it in the future, we need to know more about where it came from in the first place. And at the time, President Donald Trump had been wading in on it, suggesting that China was culpable. And China was therefore very defensive about the whole issue of the virus having originated in China. What we know for certain, of course, is that the first cases were discovered in, in Wuhan. By April, the Australian Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, made an intervention. Scott Morrison put out a call to say, well, look, we need to appoint independent investigators akin to weapons inspectors who have been given the power by the international community to track down the origins of the virus in China. didn't go down very well in China, that, because what then happened is that China seemingly in retaliation imposed a series of trade sanctions on Australia as a result of the uh, Prime Minister's remarks. But it was too late. Morrison had set a hair running. There was a general feeling that it was important to find the origin of the virus. The obvious place to get a mandate for this was the World Health Assembly, which is based on all the 194 affiliate nations to the WHO. The World Health Assembly is the decision-making body of the WHO. There was kind of there was some quite tough negotiations because on the one hand the Chinese were very dead against an, an investigation on their soil, and in the end it, it fell to the European Union to produce a compromise. And so in the middle of the May, the Assembly agreed that the would be an inquiry. And the words are quite important because the words are actually very very wide. Basically. They instructed member states to identify the zoonotic source of the virus and the route of introduction to the human population, which is very wide, isn't it? The mandate was specifically for the director general, so it's specifically to Tedros. And what it said to Tedros is, you go away and you form an investigation team to do this. The first thing that the WHO did was it, it decided it wasn't an investigation, this would be a study. The thing about a study is that you don't look for wrongdoing. You're not looking backwards, trying to do a forensic audit of things. The Insight team was one of the first to investigate the possibility that the COVID-19 outbreak began as a result of a lab leak at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. It's a lab that specialises in collecting and testing rare coronavirus samples from around the country. But we're not much closer to getting a definitive answer, at least in part because of those early negotiations between China and the WHO about what the investigation, or study rather, should look like. The WHO, in their negotiations with China, made it clear that they had ruled out any investigation at all of a laboratory leak in China. And that would have all sorts of ramifications going down the line, which has kind of left us in the position we are now. Where there's been a half-hearted um, attempt to have a kind of tour around the laboratory in Wuhan. That again goes back to this crucial period in the summer when the terms of the, the mandate for the investigation were being negotiated. And what the WHO agreed was was that that they should only hire people who are kind of specialists in the theory that the virus came from an animal, somehow got into a market or the food chain, and then passed on to humans that way. So they specifically chose experts in that field. 
What they didn't do was the opposite, which was to choose experts at auditing laboratories. Now, the World Health Organization actually has a team who audits laboratories. They do it in in Russia and America. But quite specifically, they decided not to send anyone who was expert in that because they had interpreted their mandate from the World Health Assembly to be that this was not an area that they should be looking at. The WHO decided to allow half the team to be made up of of Chinese scientists who would be chosen by the Chinese government. And then the other half of the team would be chosen by the WHO. But China would still have a veto over those members. The Americans put forward three experts they wanted to be part of the team, including a laboratory expert. But all three were rejected without even a phone call from the WHO. And instead, the only American-based scientist who was chosen was a man called Peter Daszak, who had a long history of working with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which was a laboratory under, under suspicion. Now, the WHO said that they had decided that the team would not even look at the laboratory theory, and therefore the conflict of interest wasn't relevant. But then, just in the short period before they went to Wuhan, it was decided as we're told by Team Tedros and the Chinese, that actually they would be allowed to go to the lab, but only for a couple of hours, and they would just be allowed to speak to some of the staff there. They'd be given no access to any of the database of viruses at the lab, the safety records, the uh, medical histories of the lab staff to see if they'd been infected. So it was a hugely cursory examination. The results of that investigation concluded that the lab leak theory was extremely unlikely and was not worthy of further investigation. Even the WHO staff uh, were shocked (laughs) that a team that was so unqualified with so little evidence could could come to such a conclusion. And they've told us that they, they felt that it was highly unscientific. All they did was ask questions. They were not able to do any tests, they were not able to review evidence, and they were not able to look at computers or files. All they could do is take on face value what people at the Institute told them. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the results of that investigation haven't stopped questions being asked by the rest of the world. Back in January, the Americans announced that they had intelligence that showed three people at the Wuhan Institute of Virology fell ill in November 2019, the key period in which it's believed the virus would have begun. They had uh, pneumonia-type illness and they were taken to hospital. And this contradicts the account of the the Wuhan Institute itself, which says their records show that nobody has fallen ill. So we don't know the answer to these, these questions. But the Americans were also raising questions about the fact that the Chinese military had actually been working in the Wuhan Institute as well. And again, the Wuhan Institute denied that completely. In May, President Biden tasked the CIA to come back within 90 days and report on the origins of the virus. By the end of the summer, we should begin to hear the details of that investigation. The WHO is now trying to prepare for the second stage of its own study. They'd like the scientists to go back to China. The Chinese authorities have said no. You know, you've completed your investigation in China. We've been very open with you. We've allowed you to see everything. And now you must fulfill your mandate and investigate other places outside China where the the virus 
may have come from. And so we have a complete impasse over the origins investigation. In preparing this investigation, the Sunday Times Insight team asked to interview the health agency's staff who were part of the study, as well as the Director General Tedros. The WHO press office declined their request. Margaret Chan didn't respond to a request for comment either. A WHO spokesperson responded to the allegations in the Insight investigation by saying it rehashed old events and contained falsehoods and baseless claims. The agency argues that the Director-General treats China like any other country as a matter of principle. They went on to say the WHO's top priority is ending the acute stage of the COVID-19 pandemic and we are supporting countries to implement comprehensive, evidence-based responses based on the consistent use of public health measures and the equitable use of life-saving tools, including vaccines. Certainly the investigation, we believe, raises serious concerns about the independence of the WHO. That from the experts we've spoken to in the WHO insiders, they are very concerned about the politicisation of the WHO and the electoral system and the way countries can seemingly buy influence. Certainly there are calls for an inquiry into that whole process and reforms such as stopping director generals being allowed to stand for re-election. Next year, there's another election for the WHO director general. And Tedros has been tipped to stand again. It seems clear that he will seek China's support again. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, The Sunday Times Insight Team, Jonathan Calvert and George Arbuthnot. You can read more of Jonathan and George's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producers today were Will Rowe and Leona Hamid. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you'd like to get in touch with any ideas for future episodes or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then do send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find it. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. 
Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.